Hi, I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, and welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm with my guest, Dr. Krista George. She is Associate Professor of the Department of Clinical Pharmacy and Family Medicine at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. We're going to talk about diabetes, type 2 diabetes in particular, treatments that are available, and the many different approaches we can have to it. Obviously, it's something where we see many different challenges in our daily practice. So first of all, Dr. George, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you, Brian. I'm glad to be here. My first question for you is, at one time, you know, we thought of one or two treatments for diabetes. Certainly for type 2 diabetes, there's many options out there. Where do you begin? How do you, how do you suggest we approach this? Well, I think, first of all, the most important thing is to teach patients about necessary lifestyle changes, including getting more physically active and changing their dietary habits. But then in terms of pharmacotherapy, metformin is the recommended initial agent for therapy. And metformin has been around for a while, and clearly a lot of us use it and use it regularly. Tell me a little bit about the pros, the cons, concerns you might have about it. Well, there are lots of pros for metformin. We know from the UKPDS trial that metformin leads to better glycemic control, particularly in patients who are overweight or obese, and it also can assist in weight loss, which is a, a huge benefit because a majority of patients with type 2 diabetes are overweight or obese. But also, it's the only oral medication that's been shown to reduce cardiovascular mortality. And so those are the many pros of metformin. Some of the cons are a significant number of patients may develop gastrointestinal intolerance. However, using the extended release formulation can often help mitigate that and also giving the medication with food. And you do also have to monitor renal function as there is a small risk of lactic acidosis in patients with decreased renal function. I know that's always a popular board question. They always talk about that. It, it's an issue, and certainly it's worth mentioning. But we're using it more and more as our first step. What about the idea of the many different medications that are out there? I mean, you got the TZDs, uh, you know, right on down the line. Where do you go after metformin, and when would you switch to something else? Well, I think I would stress that as long as the patient is tolerating metformin and they have no contraindications to it in terms of risk for lactic acidosis or significantly decreased renal function, such as a GFR less than 30, then you would want to continue metformin because of the potential cardiovascular benefits. And then as far as add-on therapy, the ADA and other guidelines recommend a real patient-centered approach. So essentially what that means is looking at individualized patient characteristics and looking at drug characteristics. For example, if you had a patient that was significantly overweight, you might want to consider adding on a GLP-1 agonist such as Victoza, liraglutide, because one potential benefit of that class of drugs is that they do aid in weight loss. It's interesting you mentioned that. I was reading an article recently about obesity and the different treatments for obesity. And as you say, liraglutide, it's one of the, I guess, five options since 1999 that have kind of come out as a newer set of treatments for people who have a BMI, which might put them at greater risk. Yes, absolutely. It was approved under a different brand name recently with the specific indication to treat obesity, but the dosing is different than it is for type 2 diabetes. It's a much higher dose if you're using it specifically for obesity. You know, it's funny. I've been around long enough to remember the days of Capitin or Captopril and medications like that where we would use them for a 
heart failure and blood pressure, even though there wasn't one indication or the other, because we were we were learning that they had those added advantages way back then. This is kind of a similar thing where we're starting to look at medications and they may have one plus or another. And I think this is a classic example. Yeah, I, I agree. And I remember those days too as well. By the way, your background for those listening and, and most are physicians in the audience, but you actually had the background also as a pharmacist where you're able to approach it and look at, at it from a clinical pharmacy stance. And I do want to address that for a second, the importance of having, I guess, a cohesion of care, everybody working together. This is, I think it's critical and necessary. What do you see it from your perspective? Well, from my perspective, as you said, I am a clinical pharmacist by training, and I've got the privilege to have spent my career practicing within collaborative practice agreements with both family medicine and internal medicine physicians. So, for example, in our clinic, we're the home of the University of Tennessee Family Medicine Teaching Program, the residency program. And those physicians will refer patients to the clinical pharmacist for education and management of type 2 diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, anticoagulation, smoking cessation, or just a few. So in our clinic, it's a real team-based approach. Even when they refer patients to us, we go back to them, we communicate everything that we're doing, and it seems to really bring the patients into a team-based model. And you're obviously ahead of the curve because many places are now trying to do that, many facilities, because they realize that getting everyone together, working as a team, really is a new approach, uh, and obviously to keep people hopefully out of the hospital if we can as well. Yes, it is fairly new. You can see places like the Veterans Affairs Healthcare System. I believe they're still the largest employer of clinical pharmacists that work in the outpatient setting. And then you'll find other clinical pharmacists doing similar things that we're doing in academic teaching clinics. So we're hopeful that it will make its way more out into the private world, but we still have some barriers to that in terms of reimbursement and things of that nature. I know a lot of people who are listening want me to talk about diabetes, but I digress. But sometimes they're the most fun parts <laughs> of the interview. But anyway, getting back to type 2 diabetes and, and talking about that, the different medications, what other developments have you seen for you know those of us who have the challenging patient? Let's say they try metformin. They're having some degree of success, but it's not really what you want. You mentioned uh, liraglutide as an option. What other ways would you go? Well, depending, again, on patient characteristics, if you think about many patients, particularly our patient population, we have a, a lot of financial barriers. So you do have to think about cost of medications. Some of the older medications like the sulfonylureas are effective when added to metformin. They're also inexpensive, so that might be appropriate for some patients, although they do carry the risk of hypoglycemia and weight gain. One of the newer classes of medications, the SGLT2 inhibitors, I think it's still unclear where those agents are going to fit, but they may also be used in patients who are not quite ready or not willing to consider injectable medications like GLP-1 agonists or even basal insulin since they are oral agents, fairly well tolerated, although they do carry some side effects as well. So we really have to look at what are the individual patient characteristics in terms of disease states, contraindications to medication, what are their cost barriers, and the level of hyperglycemia. For example, the DPP-4 inhibitors are oral agents and very well tolerated and work well when added to metformin, but they're less potent in terms of A1C lowering, only giving you about a half percent to 0.9% lowering compared to adding on, for example, basal insulin. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough. My guest is Dr. Krista George. She is Associate Professor of the Department of Clinical Pharmacy and Family Medicine at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. We're talking about type 2 diabetes and management. And, you know, you're, you're talking about the different medications and what's out there. And you mentioned the sulfonylureas, which are obviously tried and true, but there's good and bad about them. But one of the things is cost. But it's funny how you learn things in your career. You know, I talk to my patients about medications all the time, and they tell me certain things. My son was playing baseball, and a baseball coach he was working with who's a diabetic talked about how he had hypoglycemia, and that's it. I stopped taking medicine. I'm like, what do you mean you stopped taking medicine? I just don't want to feel that way. And you realize the impact. Like, he knew all the risks, but he just did not want to have the feeling of hypoglycemia. And when we look at it as physicians, we go, oh, that's a side effect. It's a concern. But that can really impact what people do. It absolutely does. And that's, I think, why it's so important to have a team-based approach, to have people on the team who can help educate the patient about the advantages and disadvantages of various drug therapies and really help the patients understand you know, what to watch out for, what to do about it for example, the hypoglycemia when it does occur, and to help encourage them to participate in a shared decision-making process where they really feel like they have a say in their treatment. There is some evidence to show that shared decision-making empowers patients and helps them increase their compliance. Now, I first came across your name and your background, you know, through an American Family Physician article. My question is, when you write an article like that and you're looking at evidence, obviously it's something that the rest of us are going to look at, read, and learn from. When you do that, it's got to be, in a sense, a lot of pressure putting it together, but it also has to be very exciting looking at the latest information plus your own experience. It is. It's terrifically exciting. My colleagues and I were thrilled to have the opportunity to write the article for AFP. It was certainly a team effort. We had fantastic advice from the AFP editors, and it is. It's exciting to try to interpret the literature in a way to help people who are on the ground in the trenches, just like we are. And when you mention that, I always, you know, again, we have a lot of listeners who, who will comment about these things, but I actually read a lot of those articles because exactly like you say, I can read a New England Journal of Medicine article and I'll look at it, but it's a little more esoteric. But when I read one of those articles, I'm bringing it basically to my patient saying, okay, this is going to impact what I'm doing. And it's almost like, you know, one of those chicken soup for the soul sort of things. You know, you actually, <laughs> you, you look at it, you go, okay, good. This is going to really work. I could do it today as opposed to thinking about what's going to happen in six years. Right. Well, that, that was certainly our goal is to help those primary care providers on the front lines. And so that's our hope for the article for sure. What about turning to insulin. I mean, there's so, you know, a lot of people, especially a lot of my elderly patients, when you mention insulin, they have some relationship that maybe a relative died because they went to the hospital, they were put on insulin, they died two days later, and it really had nothing to do with anything. But in their minds, they associated insulin with a horrible outcome. How do you deal with that? Because there are definitely a lot of studies and information which support getting to insulin sooner rather than later. It's a huge issue. We actually confront that a lot in our practice. And one of my colleagues is actually conducting a patient survey about barriers to insulin therapy. Our approach is to sit down with the patient and give them as much information as possible about why we think they should consider insulin, the advantages and disadvantages of it, and to really show them what are all the options 
of adding or changing drug therapy at that point. And we really use the shared decision-making approach. So we'll talk about with insulin, for example, there's no limit to its A1C lowering potency. And while it does have the disadvantages of being an injection and carries the risk of hypoglycemia and contributing to weight gain, we will talk to patients about how, depending on how high their A1C is, why do we feel strongly about insulin and, and work with them on that. So that, that's been our approach. When you talk about it with patients, I mean, you're talking about a combined uh, approach with a lot of time. How much does that extra time help? We think it, it helps a great deal. We actually, with some colleagues across the state of Tennessee, looking at collaborative practice between pharmacists and primary care docs in other clinics across the state, we did show some improved outcomes in A1C. So we think that it helps a lot, you know, based on that anecdotally and, you know, based on the study that we were able to publish a few years ago. We only have a couple more minutes left. Are there topics or things I didn't bring up that you think, boy, I wish, you know, I, I have a chance to talk about with so many family docs listening or primary care docs, anything that we need to address that you think is really important? Oh, um, well, I think the main thing is communication with patients. I know how pressed for time the primary care physicians are, and so I would encourage a team-based approach. Know who your community resources are. There are many pharmacists in the community and community pharmacies that are helping educate patients about diabetes. There are lots of dietitians in the community who are ready to help with nutrition and lifestyle changes. So, uh, think about how you can utilize other members of the team to help your patients get to goal because we know that you're so pressed for time. What about med reconciliation at discharge with patients? I, I see that as a big issue. I'm sure you see it as a big issue. How important is it that we get the right information from the hospital to the primary care doc so that you know things aren't kind of lost in translation? Oh, it's critical to good patient care. I'm sure you know the data that every time a patient is handed off, there's a huge risk for medical errors to occur. And there are many hospitals and clinics who are partnering up, utilizing both pharmacists and some nurses as well to provide medication reconciliation at various handoff points in the patient care process. And there's actually, I believe, a new mechanism for billing for transitions of care as well from going from inpatient to outpatient. So that's a, it's a growing area, and it's absolutely critical to good patient care. Well, Dr. Krista George, uh, Associate Professor, Department of Clinical Pharmacy and Family Medicine, University of Tennessee Health Science Center, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us. Unfortunately, we run out of time, but it went fast, but a lot of interesting information. Well, thank you so much, Dr. McDonough, for having me. It's been a privilege. And if any of you want to hear this, you can obviously hear it on the podcast. There's lots of opportunities through ReachMD to do this. Thanks again for listening.